Hello, people in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is Constantin Kissin, comedian and host of the fantastic Trigonometry podcast. As someone who grew up in Russia, I thought that we might be able to get a unique insight into the chaos that has been 2020's culture, identity, and politics. So today, expect to learn why Darren Grimes being called in by the Met Police is bad for everyone, what the current day and the Soviet Union have in common, who Constantin thinks will win the US election, how empathy is being weaponized, and much more. In other news, you may have seen that I have set to show a target of hitting 100,000 subscribers on YouTube before Christmas. So if you are not already subscribed, please take two minutes out of your day, head to YouTube, search Modern Wisdom and press the subscribe button. It would make me very happy indeed. And Video Guy Dean wants that 100k subscriber play button off YouTube so bad. Go do it now. Go go press the button right now. That would be lovely. In other, other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Uncommon Coffee. I have already got a ton of feedback from all of the people who put orders in after the first advert went out last week and safe to say that they didn't disappoint. Uncommon Coffee are an on-demand premium coffee service whose priority is on making their customers as happy as possible, accompanied with the cheapest prices around when it comes to literally the best tasting and most popular coffee from the number one independent coffee houses and roasters in the UK. If you are a coffee lover, you need to go and check them out. Uncommoncoffee.co.uk and with the code MW20, you can get 20% off all products. That's 20% off caffeine. Uncommoncoffee.co.uk. I've tried out their ozone. I've tried out, so like they sent out a huge box and everything was fantastic. Even the decaf. I know that that's sacrilege, but even the decaf was nice. Uncommoncoffee.co.uk and use the code MW20 for 20% off the best coffee in Britain. Go check it out. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Constantin Kissin. The stakes have been raised now, haven't they? Based on the Darren Grimes incident, I'm now culpable for what you say. So please go gently on me or I'm going to be in prison and that, and you'll be in a gulag. Well, I'm going to struggle to say anything now, aren't I? <laughs> I apparently am so ridiculously controversial with my very mainstream opinions that, uh, yeah, we're both in trouble. If we sit in silence for the next hour, that is one surefire way that we can't get in trouble. That could offend people who really wanted to listen to us talk, though, and they might report us to the police. And, uh, yeah, you never know, man. But if you remember, you came to see my show in Edinburgh last year, and this is exactly what I was talking about. Should it be illegal to have offensive opinions? And here we are, and essentially the police are investigating people, not even for their own opinions, for stuff someone else said on their show that they broadcast. Um and, uh, you know, you add to that the response to the pandemic and how that's affecting our civil liberties as well. Uh, it, it's not a great time. No, not at all. So can you give us a brief overview and take us through what we've learned from the Darren Grimes situation, in your opinion? Well, so for people who don't know, Darren Grimes is a, a conservative right wing commentator. He, I think, is rather hated by uh, many people on my side of the referendum d- debate, people who voted Remain, as I did. Uh, a lot of people who are sort of very uh, obsessed with that issue in a way that I'm not uh, felt that because he was part of the campaign to make that happen, he was investigated three times by the Electoral Commission for his involvement in that. Uh, so he's got a lot of enemies. Uh, I think that's part of it for sure. Uh, but basically he had Dr. David Starkey, controversial historian, who made some what I thought were ill-judged comments. And I know, David, we've had him on the show. He didn't say anything like that on our show. Uh, But on Darren's, he did make some uh, controversial comments, which I, as I say, I thought were ill-judged. And this happened a few months ago. There was a big furore. Dr. David Starkey was properly cancelled for it. Um, He apologised. Eventually, Darren apologised for not challenging him on what he said. And that was sort of the end of the matter. 
uh, I think a lot of people felt that even though I, th I think many people felt that he, it was appropriate that David Starkey suffered some consequences for what he said. Uh, equally, many people felt that maybe the consequences were quite harsh. Uh, where, wherever you sit on that, I respect both views on that personally. Um, uh, and uh, that was sort of the end of the matter for, for most people, I think, until we found out last week as we record this that uh, the police had invited, initially we learned that it was Darren Grimes and then also then Darren, uh, David Starkey had both been invited for what is euphemistically called a voluntary interview. Uh, interesting it's called that because if you don't attend, you get arrested. <laughs> so, so the voluntary nature of that interview is a little bit interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, so essentially we're talking about the police investigating people for things that they say and for interviewers for things that their guests say. Uh, we we had Darren Grimes on the show pretty much straight away because we felt it was a very important issue to raise to the public awareness. There were lots of other mainstream media coverage as well. And hopefully as a result of all of that publicity that, that happened, uh, the police said they've got a senior uh, officer reviewing the case. They've postponed the interviews that they were supposed to have. Uh, and at the time, actually, everyone from Ash Sarka all the way through to Priti Patel and Sajid Javid and many, many other people who at the time felt that uh, David Starkey's comments were completely wrong. Some of them said they were horrible, racist, etc. Even those people were saying, aren't the police going too far here? Uh, and so as a result, it seems that the police have rode back. They've realized there's a public backlash. Uh, how that ends, we don't know because they haven't closed the investigation. Uh, yeah, but but it, it's a, it's a troubling thing because uh, I would imagine, and it's, what I found really surprising about this, and I'm not again one of these sort of defund the BBC people, uh, but I do think the BBC is biased. And what I found fascinating was they didn't cover the story on their mainstream news at all. So while it was being talked about in the Telegraph, in the Times, it was on the front page of the Times, I think, at least on the online version, the BBC simply pretended it wasn't happening, which I thought was very interesting. Why do you think that's happening? I, I don't know exactly, but I've felt for some time now that the BBC are not reporting on cultural issues objectively, whether you, you know, the economy or all that sort of thing, there's more of a conversation to be had about which way they lean. Some people might even argue that they lean to the right on those things. But certainly when it comes to people like Darren, who, as I say, are hated by many people on the Remain side and many people on the left as well, uh, I don't think he, he got a fair shake at it. If you remember, you know, a couple of years ago when I turned down that safe space contract, uh, that was in every newspaper in the country and the BBC covered it very prominently. It was right up there. And that was an issue that many people felt had a lot to do with free speech. Well, to me, this isn't an issue of Darren uh, being conservative or not or whatever. I don't uh, share many of his views. The point is, something like that is an issue that everyone should care about. Because if you're a BBC journalist, well, you know, the BBC has had people like Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins on their show, people that I would not have on my show, right? On trigonometry, we wouldn't have them on. So... You know, they are more liable to that sort of problem than we are in a way. And yet they're not saying anything about it. And I think it speaks to some kind of bias. Now, what exactly that is, I don't know. Uh, I've been on the BBC many, many times. And my perception of it is that it's, it's full of well-meaning people uh, who all think the same. So no matter how, how hard they try, and I think a lot of people genuinely do try on the BBC to introduce balance. But if everyone in your organization thinks the same way, on these cultural issues of the culture war, then it's very difficult to then present a balanced view of an issue. And with the news coverage of Darren Grimes, I think they just, you know, they genuinely just like basically suppressed it. Yeah, man. I mean, when I first delved into the situation, I'd missed the original David Starkey interview. So I had to track back and kind of get a, a grasp on everything in real time. Um, but man, I'm really, really concerned or would have been concerned had this backtracking by the police not occurred, the ability or the the, the um, potential for me as an independent podcaster doing it, it's a lovely bedroom, but doing it from his bedroom, um, the potential that I could have anyone on 
I've spoken to porn stars. I've spoken to the uh, girl who started the UK version of OnlyFans. I've spoken to Douglas Murray, like all the same thing, obviously. And um, like, you know how to pick your guests, man. You go for the top. I really you just do. Go for the creme de la creme. Yeah, it's that filtering exactly. We should, we should reconsider. We talk to all these boring political analysts and stuff like that. You've gone straight in there with the best. Brazzers. That's who the top ten on Brazzers. That's who you need to speak to. Um, and so I've got these people on. They could say anything, and somehow. I would be liable for what mm. they say. Now, I'm going to guess that the only potential justification for this would be to treat an independent podcaster like Darren is, like you guys are, like I am, as a broadcaster, as if, we're, as if we have some sort of network in the traditional media sense of the word, that we are broadcasting media and therefore we are liable for what occurs on our channel. Is that, if you were to... Um, steel man the argument do you think that's kind of where it comes from yeah i think that's exactly where it comes from and look we're all dealing with a new world in which all of this stuff is unusual i mean podcasts have only been around 10 15 years and so our laws probably not all that well adjusted to, to the whole situation so i i think uh you know, obviously big media corporations, they have whole legal departments that deal with these, that train the presenters, you know, what you can and can't allow guests to say, what can and can't go unchallenged. Even there, there's quite a lot of bias in how, how all of that's treated. Uh, so it's perfectly possible. I mean, you talk about Douglas Murray, one of the most prominent conservative commentators in the country. Uh, and maybe, you know, a lot of the stuff he's been talking about lately, you wouldn't even say that it's a conservative view, particularly. But it's perfectly normal for him to go on the BBC and be called far right by a fellow guest uh, without necessarily being challenged, that guest being challenged in the moment. He then has to threaten to sue. They then apologize. Right. Whereas if, if you'd gone and, and slandered somebody from the other side, it wouldn't be the same. So for someone like me who's banging in the center of politics, those hypocrisies are very difficult to ignore because they're just right there staring you in the face. Um, but but yeah, I think the steel man version of the argument is we're broadcasting stuff to an unspecified number of people. And that means we're subject to broadcasting regulation. And that means that we are responsible to some extent for what people say. Uh, having said that, there is a difference between television and, and a podcast because television or radio that is broadcast into an unspecified number of people who may or may not have opted in for that particular content, right? So if you've just got the radio playing in the background and then someone comes on and starts, as in David Starkey's case, talking about damn blacks or something like that, you know, there's that's, that's different to you clicking on a podcast, which is clearly discussing, you know, the history of slavery, let's say, and then being triggered that that's happened. So there, there is a, there is a difference to be had, but I'm not, you know, I, I don't necessarily think I have the, the answer particularly because should we be able to just have anyone on to say whatever they want without any repercussions whatsoever? Probably not. You know, there, there is some responsibility. I mean, we are subject to the laws of the land. If you have someone on who, you know, incites violence, well, I don't think that should be exempt simply because you're doing it from your bedroom, right? So there's there's a way to calibrate it, but I think holding us to exactly the same standard as the BBC or ITV, I think that that's taken it a bit far. So uh, I guess we'll wait and see what 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 our legislative bodies come up with. Yeah, for sure. Both you just now and during the discourse that I heard this week with Darren as well. One of the things that he said in his defence is. Um, I was basically starstruck by David Starkey, starkstruck, um, and I didn't challenge his views as I should have done. Does that make any difference? Like, does it make any difference about whether or not you decide to challenge someone's views? The views are out there in the ether based on your broadcast. I'm not sure what my position is about whether or not him saying, hang on a second, David, you can't really say that. Like, does that change what he's said? in its essence? Well, I, I don't, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know the law on that. That seems to certainly be the mainstream approach, right? If you get someone controversial on, you don't let them talk. That's, <laughs> that's how they do it, right? So, so maybe that's what exempts you from being associated then with those views. Maybe people assume uh, that, you know, if you let me talk, that means you agree with everything I'm saying. Silence is I, compliance. 
Well, yeah, there was during this whole uh, episode recently, people said that silence is consent, which I thought was quite interesting, given uh, the Me Too stuff we've had before. I mean, it doesn't seem to fit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. With that argument, uh, I just thought that was an interesting linguistic quirk, if anything. And it sort of shows how ridiculous it is. You know, uh, my, our friend Lou Perez uh, from uh, We The Internet, who we had on the show a few months ago, uh, you know, he posted at the time of the BLM riots that were happening. He said, uh, silence is violence, right? Uh uh, speech is violence, but actual violence is not violence when people were saying these are peaceful, you know. Uh, so that's where we are. But I think, yeah, I think because we are used to the mainstream media format of interviewing people, which is you get someone on for a maximum of 10 minutes, and the moment they say anything that is in any way perceived as controversial, you have to jump in uh, and, and offer a counter argument. Then maybe when you see someone like us having a conversation, uh, then people assume that because you haven't interrupted me, you've agreed with every single word that I've said. And therefore, that lack of challenge is perceived as endorsement. Yeah, yeah, you are right. The the paradigms are shifting. I got an email. So I got such an interesting email, man, on the day that the Darren Grimes story uh, broke. Hey there, I'm Matt, the founder of Influencer Protect. I specialize in helping podcasters with all their insurance needs. I offer a bespoke service to help support areas such as making an untrue statement that results in reputational damage, breaching an advertising ruling unintentionally, copyright infringements, a brand making a claim against you, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, hang on, am I going to have to buy insurance to be a podcaster now? Like, this is obviously an emerging market. I, I think it was um, coincidence rather than uh, entrepreneurial foresight that, he re that I got that particular email. But like, man, it, it really is. I'll be very, very interested. I got a DM off Darren earlier on today. For anyone who's interested, today is the day, the morning of this, Friday the 16th of October, was when Darren was supposed to be in the police station mm -hmm. for the voluntary, not voluntary interview. Uh, and he sent me an update over uh, his the email. Dear Mr. Grimes, we're um, writing to inform you that the senior officer has been appointed to conduct a review of this matter and ensure that it remains proportionate and that all appropriate uh, lines of inquiry are being considered. While this review takes place, please note that at this time you are no longer required to attend Kingston Police Station. We will contact you in due course with further updates. I mean, that's what happens when you marshal the forces of darkness on, tw <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> which was absolutely happening. But yeah, man, I, I um, it's worrying. That's you know, previously the the Count Dankula stuff. I appreciate that there are this sort of. A death by a thousand cuts situation going on i was able to distance myself from that and feel quite detached because i'm like it's unlikely that i would be in the situation where that occurs but you know darren is slap bang in my wheelhouse uh mm. and he's a northern lad as well so yeah that that really that sort of shook me a little bit considering how much i care about this project mm. that was that was uncomfortable to find out I know what you mean uh, about Dankula, and of course, he's not the only person that this has happened to. We can go down the list. Harry Miller, who 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 retweeted a supposedly transphobic poem of some kind on Twitter, gets a call from the police saying, we need to check your thinking. Right. That's happened. Posey Parker, again, a gender critical uh, former feminist. She was interviewed by the police for expressing some of her views on trans issues. Um, Chelsea Russell, who I talked about in my in my show last year, uh, the the girl from I think she was from Liverpool. Uh, she she posted the lyrics of a song on her Instagram in tribute to a friend of hers who'd been killed in a car crash, and it was a rap song, so it contained the N word, and she was actually prosecuted and convicted for. Uh, whatever it would have been, offensive language or something like that, eventually got overturned on appeal. So we're seeing a lot of these cases coming through in the pipeline. And of course, I, it's our coffee machine. Uh, <laughs> That's nice. You turn it off, mate. Uh, sorry. This is, this is the sort of shit I was anticipating. Sorry about that. I love it. So we're seeing a lot uh, of these cases coming through the pipeline. And what it essentially means is, yes, of course, I understand your feeling of like, well, look, Dankula didn't really affect me, whereas Darren is more in my wheelhouse. But the reality of all of this stuff is 
none of us can afford to only look at our own situation on this issue. You know, it's like it's a bit like saying, you know, would you approve of summary execution for people who commit certain offenses? Well, you you might never commit that particular offense, but that doesn't mean you would necessarily approve of people being, you know, pulled up on the street, lined up against the wall. And it's the same with the free speech issue. Uh, yes, a lot of people weren't on board with Dankula. They didn't think his his sketch or whatever it was was funny. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he should have been convicted of hate speech or fined. 800 pounds or, or, or and, and be a hate criminal for life, which is essentially where he's he is now. So I think you principles like this always require you to defend people that you don't agree with and don't like. And that's just an inevitability. Uh, most people prefer to just stick to the comfortable, which is, well, I like this guy, therefore I'll defend him. But actually, none of us can afford to do that. Yeah, a principle isn't a principle until it costs you. Moving on, moving on from the Darren Grimes situation, uh, what unique insight has your cultural heritage given you when looking at the world in 2020? Have you got some particularly interesting insights based on where you're from? Mm. Well, I grew up in Russia in the 90s, uh, immediately during and after, well, before as well, but before, during and after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I saw a very stable society where everything was going smoothly, very predictable. Everybody went to work from nine o'clock, left work at five o'clock, went home, uh, made food, spent time with the children. Everything was very stable, very consistent, very predictable to overnight society being transformed into something completely different and largely unrecognizable. People who up to that point were very successful, wealthy, they had a good income, they had a predictable future, they had a solid career ahead of them. Suddenly for, for some people that, that just disappeared overnight. And equally, there was lots of opportunity for other people who had you know, uh, new ideas or in, as in the Russian case, were just prepared to be immoral or whatever it was, all the opportunities in between um, to build something new. And I think what we're seeing now with the coronavirus and the response to it and how our countries are dealing with it is much less shocking to me. And also my co-host and trigonometry, Francis, who's, who's a family from Venezuela, where he's seen something very similar. You know, we are not really shocked or particularly troubled by this situation in the same way because we're like, well, yeah, this is, you know, this idea that everything was always going to continue in the same way and be stable and predictable and, and comfortable. Um, that's that's never going to be true over, over the long term. Th these shocks will always happen. So for me, that background of growing up in a very unstable environment that literally flipped overnight, uh, it, it gives me an insight into into what's going to happen now. And, and, you know, I feel desperately sad for a lot of people who's Lives have been thrown up into complete chaos. Many people losing work, jobs, security, you know, and, and it's going to run and run because the economic impact of what's happened hasn't even been felt yet. We're probably going to have the biggest recession we've had for, for centuries. Well, that's the thing. We're, we're, we've got the pain now in the immediate, but it's our children who are going to pay the financial burden with either inflation, interest rates, whatever way that the governments decide to try and recuperate all of this mm. expenditure it's all well and good people having parties in the street because rishi's going to throw eight billion at you but like that eight billion needs repaying some at some yeah. point mm. sure and the eight billion is a tiny fraction of what we're really talking about uh there was a story in the times yesterday about the people who are designing this government app for track and trace uh doing it mainly on excel as we now know uh they're getting paid about seven and a half grand a day so they are basically on Premier League footballer wages to make the shitty app that doesn't work. Uh, and that the total cost of that is about 12 billion pounds just for that. So we're, we're basically throwing uh, bad money after bad money after bad money uh, at this whole problem. And I think your analysis is somewhat optimistic. You say it's our children that are going to pay for this. No, no, it's going to be us first. We're going to pay for it. <laughs> and our children are going to pay for it. Right. And then their children are going to pay for it too. Um, so I, but but equally, as I say, uh, a time of crisis is also a time of opportunity. The people who adjust and adapt and learn from this and understand that you know the traditional way of doing things isn't going to work uh, and respond to that with ingenuity and creativity, they will benefit tremendously too. 
Uh, and so my background, I think, gives me the understanding that th this shit happens. This shit always happens and you've got to be ready to to adjust and move with the time. So for us, for example, you know, trigonometry used to be uh, a one episode a week uh, show uh, and we might do a live stream once a week as well. When the lockdown hit, we were like, well, we're two comedians who don't have a stage to perform on anymore. Let's do more interviews. Let's do more live streams. So we are now broadcasting a piece of content an hour long every day except Monday. Right. So we've ramped that up and our fans have, have responded. We've got we've grown our audience massively. The support for the show has, has been great as well. Although we're starting to see it, you know, it's starting to dip now as people struggle with with, you know, with what we're talking about, with the economy. People are losing jobs. You know, somebody who, who was supporting us at quite high level, giving us 50 quid, 100 quid a month. Uh, those people who you'd think, well, they're going to be safe and sound and protected from all of this stuff. Actually, you know, some of them are writing to us saying, look, we love the show and my family watch it every Sunday on, on our TV. But, you know, I've lost my job or, you know, my hours have been cut or whatever it might be. Uh, so people, you know, people are being affected. But my, my broader point is in this sort of environment, uh, a lot of people are going to suffer and it's terrible. There will be some people who benefit. And I guess the question for all of us is, well, everything else being the way that it is, which one of those two do you want to be? Yeah, very much so, man. I, I really like the um, insight that you've got that you lived through a period of change and chaos. And so you sort of straddled both before, during and after, um, which again, a very, very unique view. Mm. I've been thinking a lot, especially over the last few months, about the fact that all of the catastrophes that we've had over the last 80 years since the end of World War II really just have been kind of nerfed versions of proper problems. You know, like the Spanish flu, serious, serious big pandemic, proper existential shit, or the World War II, proper serious war, people dying. Yep, Iraq, big deal. Desert Storm, big deal. You know, Afghanistan, big deal. 9-11, not to be made light of. 2008 financial crisis, not to be made light of. But all of these versions were, these incidents were dealt with in ways that were manageable and were fairly quickly rebounded from. Mm. Um, and this really is a reminder, I think, of just how tenuous humanity's grasp on existence is. You know, like mm. if anyone thought, like, what are some of the, the human institutions that we usually rely on? finances yeah the banks will look after it the economy will be okay health oh well at least grandma and granddad are all right or at least there's a future for my kids education oh well at least like little timmy can go off to school all this sort of stuff like there's very few areas that haven't been shaken to their core mm. and i uh, appreciate both sides of the fence with people now saying well look the, the the lockdowns and stuff there's mental health problems that are coming through i'm not convinced that um opening a fairly ambivalent about the about the lockdowns it's just kind of i leave it to the epidemiologists and the virologists and public health experts but um i think that the lockdowns are only a small part of this i think the ambient anxiety is due to a lot more of what's going on it's the fact that everyone has been wildly reminded of their own mortality and they're staring it in mm. the face look at just how and little... we don't like it no we really don't like it do we well, I mean, think of anyone who's read Ernest Becker's Denial of Death. Like, that is about the fact that everything we do in life is to escape our, our awareness of death. And if there's ever been a year, like 2020 is the year that death has stared all of us in the face. Financial death, educational death, career death, uh, health. Scary, man. It is. And uh, I think as you're pointing out, I mean... I, I share your analysis, by the way, on the series of smaller crises we've had since World War II. The only thing I would possibly add uh, for a broader picture is, of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which, uh, in which we were literally minutes away from everyone on the planet dying. Uh, but it didn't feel as visceral on an individual level. It wasn't like we were all, you know, sitting in our bunkers. Um, but apart from that, I agree with you. You know, let, sure, we can leave the, the lockdown stuff to the epidemiologist, but but we've interviewed doctors on the show. We've interviewed people on the show. And a lot of people now have concluded that the lockdown, while not necessarily preventing many COVID deaths, there's not any particularly strong evidence that that is the case, uh, is definitely having a huge impact on the number of deaths we're going to see in the, in the months and years to come. Because what's happening is you're saving the lives of elderly people. Uh, who, who end up living a few months longer or a year longer. Uh, and uh, the cost of that is that you are 
delaying cancer diagnosis, you're delaying uh, other treatments for other very serious conditions in younger people, uh, you're delaying dealing with mental health, you're exacerbating people's problems with many, many things. And the chances are more people will die as a result of the lockdowns than of COVID-19. Can you explain what weaponizing empathy means? Hmm. So this is uh, from an interview I did with the former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, uh, John Anderson. And, and he was very kind to have me and I really enjoyed talking to him. One of the things we were talking about is how identity politics has been used uh, uh, to antagonize different groups against each other. And identity politics, for people who aren't familiar with it, being the idea that the way we should think of ourselves in terms of our political discussions isn't you know, I'm Constantine and I'm Chris and I, Constantine, think this about the economy and I think this about uh, culture and I think this about immigration and you have your own individual thoughts, but rather we should think of it as, well, we're two men or I'm an immigrant and I assume you're British-born and British-descent, right? Uh, I love the confidence with your, yeah, yeah, definitely. Mate, I'm, from, I'm from the northeast of England with a mum who's like one-sixteenth Scottish and a dad who's from Newton Aycliffe. I'm like as, as born and bred salt of the earth as you're going to find. Right, exactly. So, so, so identity politics basically says that you should think of yourself as a straight white man. I assume you're straight. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Straight, so whatever you are, straight white man, uh, I am a straight, possibly white man, but I'm also Jewish and I'm also an immigrant. And I should think about myself and my political views through that prism. So let's say that uh, instead of being straight, white and male, you were a black gay woman. Well, your views wouldn't be dictated by your individual personality, but rather the views that you have are shaped primarily by the fact that you are black, that you are gay, that you are female. And that th the way you should view politics is through that prism and the way that society should view you is also through that prism. In other words, by looking at you, I can already tell that you as a straight white man, massively privileged been oppressing people for centuries, your people are the e evil, blah, 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 blah. And equally, if you're a, a, a black gay woman, well, the chances are you're super oppressed. And therefore, that means you're supposed to have certain political views as well. That's identity politics. So uh, and this is uh, a view of politics that has completely taken over uh, our cultural institutions in society and many other institutions too. It, it's the way we talk, you know, there was a, a, a liberal MP today or the other day who suggested that we need all ethnic minority shortlists, right? This is the sort of product. Like a team or, sheet. Or, yeah. <laughs> like exactly. a roll call. Can yeah, all of the Latinos well, put their hands up, please? Right. So it's saying the way you get MPs of, of, from ethnic minority backgrounds into parliament is not allow white people to stand in certain constituencies, essentially. Right. Because white people are, quote unquote, privileged. Therefore, they don't deserve that opportunity. They've had too many opportunities already. And we need to raise up people. Um, and of course, what this ignores is almost exclusively the, the, the ethnic minority people who do come in many, many cases. I actually... You know, they've been to a private school, went to Ox Oxbridge, uh, you know, did PPE there uh, at Oxford and then became a parliamentary assistant and work or or in Rishi Sunak's case, you know, very prominent family, etc. Um, with, with links to banking or whatever his background is. Right. So it's taking this very blunt force view of of racial relations, uh, of, of relations between men and women and of how we conduct our politics now. How is that? And my point was when I was talking about this is how has that happened? How has this ideology, which is antithetical to everything Western society is built on, Western society is built on the idea that we're all individuals, right? And and that what matters about us is not the color of our skin. I remember a guy called Martin Luther something that was talking about this, right? How we should not be judged by our skin color, but rather we should be judged by the content of our character, by who we are as individuals. How did this collective idea identitarian idea, how did that embed itself so firmly into our political discussion? And and the way it has is it's, it's a very powerful tool because if I say to you, well, look, <coughs> excuse me, as an immigrant, I am deeply oppressed or my life has been difficult. Well, unless you're a psychopath, your instinct is to go, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Like what's what's been your life experience, right? Uh, and that's most people's instinct because most people are compassionate and caring uh, and they want 
to, you know, to express support and sympathy for people who, who are victims of life, because some people genuinely have had difficult experiences. We all have, uh, but some people more than others. Uh, and so you take that the, and you use people's empathy against them. If you say to people, well, look, uh, you know, Britain is the most evil racist country in the world. A lot of people initially will go, well, well, OK, especially in this country where the culture is sort of very apologetic and, and you, well, I'm sorry, you know, you stepped on my foot, but I apologize to you, that sort of attitude. Um, people go, OK, well, you know, let's look at maybe, maybe, maybe you know, did we, we had slavery in this country and, and we, we had this and we had that and, you know, our ancestors did certain things. Let's maybe look at that. You know, if you're saying that you are discriminated against in modern society because of your skin color or your sexuality or, or, or whatever else it might be, well, maybe that's true. Let's have a look at that. And I think there's definitely some room for that. You know, when I came to this country in the 90s, it was certainly less tolerant than it is now. And I think that progress has been a result of, of that sort of attitude of like, let's make sure that we learn the lessons from the Stephen Lawrence murder and cover up by the police, right? Let's learn the lessons from certain things that have happened that are atrocious and tragic. Let's learn the lessons of, you know, the racism that was quite common in this country 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, but what it's got to now is the people who've, who, who create that sort of grievance industry some of which was initially needed, they now want to survive and sustain their lives. And so you've got these professional race baiters on TV who go on and talk about how, you know, they're even more oppressed than they've ever been and life is terrible. And what they're doing is they're using decent, ordinary people's empathy against them. I, I really like the weaponizing empathy um, terminology. I think it, it nicely encapsulates the weakness that is being targeted. Um, and as mm. someone who does have excess empathy it, it makes for a very difficult um it makes me confused about my own views because i get scared about saying the wrong thing about upsetting someone uh then as you'll be aware and uh, you know as a little bit of an insight behind breaking the fourth wall for how you guys and both me will be i wonder whether you have felt the increase in ambient anxiety about saying the wrong thing as your platform grows like when it's a, a full-on bedroom project that no one gives a shit about, you're like, well, so what? Like I've got all this other stuff that's going on. But as your baby, as a independent podcaster or broadcaster or radio host or whatever it might be, as that becomes a bigger and bigger part, part of your life financially, um, passionately, career-wise, as that grows, you're actually, hang on a second, I got something to lose here. I genuinely have something that I should be afraid of with that, you get more stability because presumably you would have the support of a larger audience. You also have a greater backlog of content. Jordan Peterson has always said, um, you, if you want to call me a right-wing Nazi, there is hundreds of hours of me lecturing online. Please find the point at which I've done that. Um, but yeah, have you felt that? Because I, I certainly, little twinges in the back of my mind, I'm like, there's something to lose here now. Yeah, I think I've got a very sort of perverse personality in that way, in that uh, I actually feel much freer to speak my mind now than, than I've ever done. Uh, because, first of all, I'm very clear that uh, not everyone's going to agree with me. You know, what, that contract that we referenced when I turned it down two years ago became a big story. And that sort of, it like broke everything for me like in a moment, you know, sometimes you stretch a band and stretch a band and stretch a band and eventually, but for me, it was just like snap the fucking thing in, in, in literally in two weeks. Baptism and of I fire. Went from, yeah, baptism of fire, exactly. So I went from literally, no one really knows me. I don't have any public profile. I'm on a comedian on the comedy circuit. I'm doing pretty well, but not, not anything spectacular. I'm m moving up the ranks. I get on with most people very well. I don't, comedians sort of like me, other comedians and my colleagues, whatever, to in the space of two weeks going, okay, well, half of the comedy industry now hates me, half <laughs> of the comedy industry now likes me. Uh, and from that moment, just the number of fucks I give has rapidly plummeted towards zero very, very quickly. Uh, and the thing is, the bigger the platform grows uh, in terms of trigonometry and my own following, uh, I just feel people have got our backs, man. 
You know, the people who watch our show, they'll back us. And if, if we come under attack, they will chip in and they'll help us out. And if, if we get sued for something, there'll be people to help us out. The Free Speech Union uh, is a big factor in Darren Grimes' case, but in many others, they're helping people deal with, you know, libelous accusations, being sacked for, from work for saying something controversial, whatever. Um, so I feel like there's, there's actually... You know, on Trigonometry, we probably have about 200,000 subscribers across the different platforms if you put YouTube and other stuff together. Now, there's 200,000 people, many, many of whom really believe in what we're doing. They, they agree with the principle of what we're doing, which is trying to have honest conversations with interesting people, which is what you do. Uh, and if they feel that that is being destroyed, I have every confidence that uh, our audience uh, will back us up. And, that, you know, we were just chatting today in the studio with, with the guys, with the team about... You know, we posted a joke. Uh, I posted a joke on about the the vaccine uh, on on my Twitter. About being which, good, good with mathematics. Yeah, about the, I basically said that I'm going to take a rushed vaccine. I'm not worried about it because I've always wanted to be good with maths. Uh, the idea being that vaccines, some people say, give you autism, right? And and the first comment on, under that Facebook post on our page was. I'm autistic, and I'd just like to say I'm not in any way offended by this post. Right? So <laughs> the audience we've built are people who really appreciate what we do, and they'll back us up. Um, and I hope that's not naive. And as long as we stick to our principles, I think, uh, you know, people have your back. And that's really the great power of the Internet is in the past, I think canceling people was much easier because all you did is, you know, you burn them at the stake or you get them fired or whatever it might have been. Now... You know, for people like me and you, being cancelled may actually be quite beneficial. You Clout, know? man. Uh, everything, everything's clicked. As my good friend and social media marketer buddy Johnny says, clicks are clicks. And that's the situation that you found yourself in with the contract. Mm. You know, it's like... Yeah, it was. I, I think everyone gets a couple of cracks at like the viral moment Zuby's deadlift video Darren Grimes is being called in by the Met Police your contract thing um my early one was Love Island but we don't talk about that um so you know we have these opportunities to 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 kind of capitalize on it and you're totally correct that that first order effect of being a weakness might second third fourth order effect actually be the platform the springboard that you need to then further the further the audience so yeah man i i hope i hope that you're right i, I really do think decentralizing the control um and and being your uh, going to great lengths to make yourself uncancelable as sam mm. harris says is strong build a following on a platform then build an email list that is not mediated by anyone try and cancel it. you like go to move your platform you move your audience anywhere once you have an email list mm. they can go anywhere and that's bulletproof yeah, obviously there are exceptions to that, and some people have been sort of censored way off. But you know, I, I'm not. Uh, as I, I sort of joked at the beginning, I'm super controversial. Actually, I have very centrist opinions on pretty much everything. Um, it's just the weird world we live in. So I, I don't ever anticipate, you know, being taken off all these platforms for saying what I say. Uh, but I'll still, you know, insist that other people shouldn't. I love it. What is your prediction for the 2020 election? Uh, I, every day I wake up and I change my mind. What's today then? Today is Friday the 16th of October, 2020. What's your prediction? Yes. So yesterday I thought Biden was going to win. <laughs> today I think Trump is going to win, but it's going to be close and it's going to get very messy. Take, very, me through, very messy. take me through the thinking. <sighs> okay. So national polling uh, and I, I invite people, uh, They is it, how soon after we record this is this going out? Less than a week, so pretty quick. Okay, so I interviewed with a guy called Jim Rickards, who was one of the analysts who predicted Trump's first election uh, very early on. Uh, we'll be going out at some point in the next week or two after this goes out. And uh, we've had him on the show a number of times. And what he was saying was, yes, Biden is up in the national polls by 10 to 12 points. He is. Uh, but national polls don't matter because in America they don't have national elections, right? It's all done state by state. So you have to win the battleground states. Uh, the fact that uh, Biden and Harris are going to get, let's say, four million more votes in California than Trump doesn't really matter because you can only win California once. 
So the national polling isn't necessarily indicative of the result. If you remember in 2016, Hillary won the popular vote by quite some margin, didn't really help her because of the Electoral College. So that's another, well, that's one part of it. Obviously, the shy Trump voter is a huge phenomenon, right? Uh, and also, I think it's not been much covered in, in the mainstream media uh, in this country or much of the mainstream media in America. But what is happening in many cities or several cities in America now is full-blown riots, burning down of property, shops, people are being killed in the streets for, you know, turning up to some protests and being pro-Trump, literally being shot in the head, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, the Antifa people who are doing this are now taking that fight to the suburbs. They're, they're taking it into where the middle class, quote-unquote, people live. And th I can tell you one thing that I know from experience. Uh, the moment you start messing with people's sense of safety, the moment a middle class couple with two children and a nice car and a garage or whatever suddenly feel like there's armed people outside who may well burn their house down, that is the moment when people will vote for anyone as long as they promise to prevent that, which is my greatest fear with all of this, right? And I don't know if you remember, when we had the BLM riots in London, I had a massive super viral thread on Twitter talking about this very thing, that the greatest danger of allowing these riots to happen and then being biased in terms of saying they're largely peaceful when police officers are being attacked, etc., is that if you show people these scenes of disorder long enough uh, and they sh you show the police backing down and not tackling and not undressing the sort of uh, disorder, then what they will eventually go is, look, I don't care what this guy, I don't care if he's racist. I don't care if he wants to deport immigrants. I just care that he or she is going to deliver stability and order. And my sense is that there will be many people in America uh, who don't want to see their cities burned down, uh, who are going to look at what's happening and go, look, I don't like Donald Trump. I think he may be a bit racist. I think he shouldn't talk about women the way he talks. I think he's obnoxious. I think he's brash. But they're going to look at that and go, "What? what's the choice here? I can either have a racist, sexist president, if that's how they see it, or I can have my house burned down. Now, you put that in front of any <laughs> certain person. I mean, right? That's... That, that's what I see. So uh, I, I've sort of been disenthralled of this idea that the national polls are, are necessarily a strong predictor. It's going to be close and it's probably going to end up uh, not being uh, a result on election night. We may not see a result for, for two, during which time Donald Trump is almost certainly going to be uh, the leader because Republicans tend to vote in person, Democrats much more uh, with the voting uh, do the voting via post. So what you're going to have is a week or two when Donald Trump, quote unquote, won, but the election result isn't unconfirmed. And then those ballots may come in and he may then lose. Man. That's not a healthy situation, my friend. Um, I'm glad, you know, one of my biggest criticisms of Trump is that he refused to say that he would hand over power peacefully. Uh, until yesterday, which is when he finally did, which I'm glad, because uh, I think, you know, that's completely unacceptable in a democracy for one party to say they wouldn't accept the result of an election. On the other hand, it's equally deeply unacceptable for Biden to refuse to talk about whether he's going to pack the court or not, because if you start messing with the, the Supreme Court and the number of justices on that to suit your political agenda, well, that's the end of the American project as well. Uh, so both of those things are completely unacceptable. I'm glad Trump has wrote back on that. I hope Biden uh, and uh, Kamala Harris now say they're not going to do that as well, because uh, that is very, very important. But it's going to get messy. It is. Douglas, I asked Douglas the same question. This has been a theme. I asked Gad Saad. I asked Andrew Doyle. I've asked Douglas. I've asked yourself. Uh, and Douglas gave the most. He had to pull the fence out of his ass uh, in order to be able to uh, actually speak. But he said... Um, whatever happens, it's not going to be very well accepted. And he's got some quite big fears, which is interesting because he's now in America. Like he's now over mm. there. So like, fair play, mate. They, like if stuff gets set on fire, you've decided to pop yourself in amongst it. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that no matter your political leaning, trying to undermine the democratic process at large 
really has to be one of those things that's unacceptable. It's like, look, you can two-foot slide tackle me, I can push you while you're off the ball, but no one can come in and pick it up and run away or shoot the referee. Like, these things are outside the rules of the game. In fact, they change the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. If we're supposed to be playing chess and you rugby tackle me to the floor, like... That kind of just what what are we what are we doing here? There has to be some right. upper bound. But again, like what have we been this disintegrationist left, as Ben Shapiro and and Dave Rubin refer to it? Like that game of one-upsmanship. We'll do something. We'll break some rules. So we'll break some rules. So we'll break some rules. And think as well. Everybody's self-branding. Everyone looks in some form or another, for some reason, there is a particular minority who look to political leaders as uh, examples as role models of how they should like spend their lives morally or or just you know trump says something then you get it regurgitated or biden mm. says something then kamala harris says something then you get it regurgitated like if they are saying well we can break all of the rules and they're supposed to be these paragons of diplomatic virtue right they're supposed to be the ones who are the least uh um at the mercy of trends there's, you know, the mm. fucking lighthouse in the storm type bullshit. That's what your politicians are supposed to be. Um, if they're prepared to keep on changing all of the rules, what precedent does that set for everybody else? And it really, it really can quite quickly become a vicious cycle. So yeah, I think, um, the next, when is the, is it the 22nd of November? When is it? The 3rd of November. Oh shit. It's very soon. It's soon, man. Wow. So I mean, the next three weeks are going to be, they're going to be, compelling well let me add, yeah compelling if you like horror movies uh, <laughs> the, the, there there is another aspect to this and i think you speak to that very well which is that uh if you allow politicians to to conduct themselves in this way and to delegitimize the democratic process which both sides have done uh, but particularly in my opinion the, the democrats uh in america and the left in this country as well uh then what you end up with is a situation where we are now where 36 percent of both democrats and republicans feel uh that violence is justified to achieve your political ends so a third of both supporter groups are quite happy to use violence right which has gone up from eight percent about two years ago so if you've got that situation, the election is in dispute. Both parties are undermining the the, uh, the democratic process and encouraging their followers uh, essentially to feel like violence is a way of resolving this issue. Not a good recipe. Not no. a good recipe. Not at all. And I think, you know, to see, we, we, we often see these tip of the spear moments that um, they're like the maxim pithy aphorism quote that everyone remembers that tells them about what a wider concept means and mm. some of the things that we've seen like trump not being presidential during the debate like uh, perhaps four years ago it was cool and quirky and new and made people feel like he was going to drain the swamp and do this cool thing and oh isn't it interesting to see someone who's not diplomatic and doesn't play by the rules whereas now you're like yeah okay mate like this is this is kind of old hat now. I'm not so fussed about, I just want to hear the debate. Let's get back to mm. that rule and that, you know, we vacillate between two different extremes and finally find something somewhere in the middle. But then you've got it on the left as well with the way it's much more of a, uh, how would you say, it's the, the sneaky fucker game that's being played on the mm. left. It's the brash hit it with a mallet game that's being played by Trump. Um, but yeah, man, I, I'm going to be, like you say, compelled for the horror movie over the uh, over the next couple of months couple of questions left um why are comedians getting involved in political dialogue like people might not have expected individuals like you and andrew doyle would have been the vanguard of free speech mm -hmm. well for comedians it's something that we feel viscerally because every time you go on stage you are already self-censoring uh because you're trying to find th that point between what you are saying and what the audience wants to hear and you're trying to find that line right so we're constantly playing with it and of course we say things that we don't mean right so this literalism the idea that we should take jokes literally uh, and if you, if i made a joke about autistic people that means i hate autistic people right that is a problem for us on a sort of practical level if you like uh, I also think comedy attracts people who are rebels by nature, 
Uh, and so we're naturally drawn to, or at least that's what I thought until I went into the comedy industry and found it to be the most conformist uh, monoculture I've ever seen. Uh, but I did think, you know, watching, uh, you know, people like Bill Hicks and George Carlin and, and people like that, that, you know, comedy is for, for people who like have a different opinion, man. And they, they, you know, they want to say something that some people don't want to hear. Right. Like that's what I thought. But now apparently that's not what comedy is about. Comedy is about making sure that you, you make fun of the right people uh, and, uh, you know, make you wh whatever this work show is. I can't even be bothered to talk about it anymore. Um, so I think comedians are naturally sort of rebellious by nature, or at least some of us are. Uh, so it, it's a sort of professional hazard to us, uh, the restriction of free speech. And there's also the other thing of like we don't like restrictions. We are pro freedom. Uh, and restricting people's speech restricts how they think. And Jordan Peterson hammered this point home a lot, which is without being able to speak freely, you can't think freely. Um, and if you can't think freely, well, we're all fucked. So I think that's that's kind of where it's coming from. Are comedians the saviors that we need at the moment, you reckon? More comedians? Uh, I don't know. I, I, I think I think it takes everybody. Look, I mean, I think, look, look at the Free Speech Union, which I've mentioned, they're doing great work. Shows like the, yours and, and ours, uh, you know, we're not strictly comedians in, in this context, but we're doing what I think is good work. Uh, there are some journalists who are starting to push back against all of this stuff. Uh, I, I think everybody's got a hand in this. I, I think the main thing is uh, that people need to, to think about, do you want to live in, in a society that judges everybody by their skin color, their race, their sexuality, their gender, etc.? Or do you want to live in a society that we all remember that we're individuals and we come together based on what we think, how we feel about things, what are what are our views? And if we want to sort of divide us up, ourselves up, which we'll always will do because we're tribal by nature, then the healthy way to do that is, is to sort of do it on a voluntary basis of, well, I think this and you think that and we both believe in free speech. So let's form a free speech society or whatever else it might be, as opposed to going, well, we're both men. Men need to stick together. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, I mean, we do. Uh, which guest have you enjoyed most or been most surprised by this year? I don't know. I, I always hesitate to answer this question because it's like saying, you know, uh, my, one of my heroes, Michael Jordan, the basketball player, was once asked which of his six championship titles uh, was his favorite. And he said, well, that's like asking me which, which of my kids, kids I love the most. Right. So to me, you know, obviously we have brilliant guests and some guests are stronger than others or whatever. Uh, but, uh, I try not to sort of evaluate it that way. We've had so many brilliant guests. Which uh, one, were you, which one were you most, most surprised by was the one that you particularly were, um, pleasantly surprised by? Well, I actually would say Darren Grimes. I mean, he comes across as incredibly intelligent, articulate, <clears throat> interesting, uh, original, thoughtful, uh, not in any way sort of unpleasant or, you know, controversial even. The guy is pretty, you know, he has the views of half the country on, on pr pretty much every issue. Uh, so so I was surprised at that because I didn't really, I wasn't all that familiar with him. I knew him as the right-wing commentator, you know. Uh and so, yeah, I mean, that's the one that comes to mind straight away. It's just he was, you know, we were both very, very impressed with Darren. Yeah, he, for someone who has that accent, I love the fact that he's so erudite and yet will say, like, off to me mams to go and get myself some fish and chips. And you're like, yeah. hang on, how is this? There's some bizarre world because it's so London-centric, right, especially the publishing in the UK. Um, mm. To hear someone who, for me, is a very, very familiar accent um right. de deploying some incredibly complex and nuanced thoughts i'm like yeah yeah that's that's cool man uh last mm -hmm. question what is the one thing that we're not talking about that we really should be uh, shoes on the other foot now how's that for is. you uh, and unlike us you didn't warn me this was coming so i have to think <laughs> of my um i think the one thing we're not talking about is the end game of all of this, the end game of identity politics. What is that? If you multi, if you play the movie forward, where do you get to? And I think if more of us thought about that and were prepared to speak about that openly and more people considered those outcomes, we would be m much more careful and much more reluctant to proceed in the direction that we've been going. Because the truth is that... <clears throat> 
They tried it with men and women. They tried to antagonize women against men. And they, they managed to some extent. But no matter how hard you try, there's, as somebody said, I can't remember who, there's too, too much fraternizing with the enemy right? <laughs> uh, between men and women. So you can't quite drive them apart. Deep down, even if you teach one young woman at university that all men are bad, all men are evil, whatever, eventually the biology kicks in and they go, I want a partner. I want to have children. I want this. I want that. Not all of them, but many will do. So you can't really drive them apart. But the racial issue is very different. There, it's, it's not written anywhere in stone on a tablet that Moses brought down from the mountain that we have to have a multi-ethnic society. It's not written anywhere. That is an experiment that we've willingly engaged in and suspended our human tribalism to actually try to make it happen. And we've said, look, the American dream is, right, we don't have a British dream, but in America, if you come to this country, right, and you work hard, you get your head down, you learn the language, you integrate, you are American. If you come to Britain and you settle down here, you make your roots, you learn the language, you integrate, you become part of society, you drink tea and apologize and whatever else you're supposed to do, right, you are British. That's what we've said, and that is an experiment that was working and working very well and getting better and better and better. Now, if you look across the world, that's not how most countries are. Most countries are essentially ethnostates, right? Now, we've said we're going to have a multi-ethnic society. Well, the only way a multi-ethnic society works, the only way a multi-ethnic society remains peaceful, the only way a multi-ethnic society remains coherent is if people set aside their racial categories and actually don't say, well, I'm a black person, or I'm a, a brown person, or I'm a white person. No, you say, I'm British, right? That's not to say you have to discard your black or white or whatever identity, but it can't be the first thing that you think of when you think about yourself, because otherwise you're driving people apart. And the end game of that is very, very ugly. Man, that is a, an apocalyptic answer, but one that I agree with. I said this to Andrew when he came on the show the other day, that the hopeful counter to this, I'll give you my thesis for us moving forward, or my hope, I would guess, mm. is that in the same way that the pandemic has been quite piss weak, I know it's done a lot of damage, but really COVID, it just doesn't have the mortality that it needs to cause a real existential threat. Now, it still might mutate and all that stuff, like disclaimer, disclaimer. Um, but it was quite a weak version of it. And yet we were wholly unprepared for it. But if and when a new pandemic comes around that's got smallpox level mortality, we understand how to lock down more effectively. We understand how to shut travel routes. We can get PPE produced more quickly. We've got the 3D printing. We've got the, the ventilators. We've got all that stuff, right? So we are prepared because we were delivered a, a kind of a weak dose of something that may be worse in the future. Mm -hmm. My hope is that the identity politics game which is being promulgated over the last few years that has attached itself to the wrong horse the trojan horse that it's tried to deliver a particular ideology in is inherently so self-contradictory and just a losing race that everyone can see the hypocrisy in it the ridiculousness of it and it's so self-defeating because it fractures its own group into competing different levels of hierarchy to the point at which it, the snake just eats its own tail and in future, if some other ideologues decide to come along and get themselves behind a particular cause, that we go, hang on a second. Like, I remember that you played this game once before. Like We've been here. Now, this one might seem a little bit more seductive or more polished and a bit more virtuous, truthful, or whatever. But no, 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 no. We, we, we had this. So I'm wondering whether or not this ridiculous example of trying to push a particular ideology has been attached to the wrong the wrong racehorse and is potentially going to inoculate us against it happening in future it's a very optimistic view <clears throat> one that i shared in march uh, i thought that in march we had about a, a month uh, in, up until about dominic cummings and then immediately after george floyd there was that moment we had an opportunity you know, we all, quote unquote, came together. Shared humanity. 
shared humanity, clap for the NHS, etc., etc. And even then, some people try to go on about how, you know, uh, BAME people are more likely to die from COVID and somehow that's society's fault, when in fact it's just vitamin D is harder to obtain for people with darker skin. Um, but, but, but it was sort of ignored, mostly, and we sort of pulled together. Uh, but I think the lockdown, the impact of people spending more time on social media worrying about the future, being stuck indoors. Many people in, you know, if you, if you are living in a happy family uh, and, and you work from home and, and you, you know, uh, you've got a garden and, and a, a nice house, uh, <clears throat> then your mental health is probably fine uh, if your job is safe and all the rest of it. But for a lot of people, it wasn't like that. I, I know people, young people who, for example, you know, they were stuck with uh, somebody else in the house, a step parent who was abusive, you know, uh, or, or just people stuck in, in the wrong environment with flatmates that they've meaning they've been meaning to leave that flat and that they were in dispute, or people stuck in in loveless marriages or whatever. That mental health impact, I think, is what then exploded uh, with BLM. Uh, that pent up frustration, anger, confusion. Uh, that's why we had protests about George Floyd in the UK, which, if you think about it, doesn't really make much sense. Man, I agree, Constantine. Thank you so much for today. People want to check out Trigonometry or yourself. Where should they go? Where do they where do they direct themselves? I am on Twitter at Constantin Kissin, and the show is at TriggerPod. We're on YouTube, all the podcast apps. Just search for Trigonometry, as in Gun Trigger. T R I G E R. Amazing man! If I get a call off the Met Police, we can share an Uber there together. Uh, hopefully, we haven't crossed any boundaries. I- I've really, really enjoyed today. I think that you guys are doing fantastic work. Um, I'm proud to be of the the particular little sort of weird, fucked up community that we've got of British podcasters um, mm. doing good work at the moment. So long may it continue. Thanks, I appreciate it, and and uh, right back at you. And also, if we do have to share an Uber, that would be illegal because we need to socially distance. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget, we are trying to hit 100,000 subscribers on YouTube before Santa Claus arrives. So please open up YouTube, type in Modern Wisdom, and go hit the subscribe button. It would make me very, very happy indeed. Go do it. Go do it. Press the button. Go press the button now. And I'll see you next time.